can everybody hear? I just want to make sure we're doing okay. Good morning. So we're going to be doing um, the Sicha on Shlach, Shlach Gimel from Chelek Yudchet. Sicha Gimel. Um, before we start, I want to go back and read some of the Pesukim just to give it a little bit of context. I think it will help a lot. So if you open up to uh, Perak Yud Gimel of this week's Parsha, we're going to go to Pasuk Kavches, Lamed Bet, and Lamed Gimel. I'm going to read them in English just to um, have it very easily understood and um, not stop in it for too long. So we started the Parsha that Hashem tells Moshe he can send out spies to check out the land. So the spies have all gone. It's one from each tribe. And they come back to report. And it says here in Pasuk 28, <coughs> excuse me, Kapres 28, However, the people who inhabit the land are strong and the cities are extremely well fortified. And we also saw the descendants of the giants there. So that's pretty intimidating. If we skip ahead a little bit to Lamed Bet and Lamed Gimel, the land through which we pass in order to explore it is a land that destroys its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw there were men of great size. And Pasuk Lamed Gimel, and there we saw the Nephilim, the giants who had descended from the fallen ones. We viewed ourselves like locusts against them. And so they did indeed view us. Those are pretty strong words for the, for the Jews to be hearing right now. Um, but let's skip ahead to chapter 14, Perak Yodalid. We'll read um, Pasuk Chet and Tet. If the eternal desires, he will bring us to this land and give it to us a land that flows with milk and honey. Sorry, I should have been clear. Um, this, so what I read before, those very intimidating psukim come from the 10 spies. But then we have, as you know, Yehoshua and Kalev that speak in a completely different way. So this is now coming through the voice of Yehoshua and Kalev. If the eternal desires us, he will bring us the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. So after they've been told how intimidating it is and how weak they are in comparison, they're hearing a completely different message. And now the Pasuk that we're going to stop on the most is Pasuk Tet. Only do not rebel against the eternal, and then you need not fear the local people, for they are our bread. Their shadow of protection has left them, and the eternal is with us, so do not fear them. So this is a much more reassuring and uplifting message. Rashi is going to is going to explain this pasuk, and we're going to spend a long time talking about Rashi on this pasuk. Altim rodu, which means do not rebel. Rashi says v'shub ba'atem al tirau, and then you will not fear. Um, then on the words, for they are our bread, ki lachmenu hem. No chaltem kalechem, we will consume them like bread. Again, a very different message than we are like locusts in comparison. And on the phrase, sar silem, which is translated as their shadow has left them. Maginim v'chazkam k'sherim shebahem metu, ya magen alehem. Davar acher, selu shel hamakom sar malehem which means their protection and strength, the worthy ones among them have died. This refers to you who protected them with his merit. And another explanation, the shadow of the omnipresent has left them. Now, as we know from learning Rashi Sichas, if you want to just 
jump ahead a, get a, a, a drop. If Rashi gives two explanations, that always lends us the question of why do we need both explanations? What's the problem with the first? What's the problem with the second? I'm not going to answer that right away, but we are going to have that question. So that's the backdrop to the Sicha, that we have um, the spies give a very overwhelming and, and frightening and intimidating report. And then we have Yeshua and Kalev with these more uplifting words. So now let's open up the Sicha. Helak <coughs> Aleph. So the Rebbe in this Sicha is giving us a little bit of a backdrop about what Rashi, what Rashi does. We've explained many times that the commentary of Rashi on the Torah is coming to teach the contextual shuto shel mikra, contextual or simple meaning. As Rashi himself has said many times in the first parsha, he says, I have, my, my singular mission is to uh, discuss the shuto shel mikra, the simple explanation or the contextual. Yesh bogam inyanim However, nonetheless, there are many, many wondrous concepts and ideas that are embedded within Rashi. Throughout the entire Torah, even the secrets of Torah, the highest, most esoteric concepts that come from Torah. And as we know from the, the words of the Alter Rebbe, that the commentary of Rashi is actually the wine of Torah, the wine being the deepest and the most esoteric and the most pleasurable in many ways. So we have that Rashi on one hand, he's the, the simple meaning, but on the other hand, within his words, we can take out very, very deep lessons. So now this might, um, I felt like this was, was kind of an interesting thing. In order to get to the depth of Rashi and these wondrous ideas that some of us like to skip to when we when we see one of these deep sikhas, sometimes you just want to get to the end and get to the really you know exciting part. But really, the Rebbe is saying, in order to get there, we must learn and understand the Perush Hapasha, the simple explanation. Because Rashi embeds them, these wondrous ideas, these deep ideas, the, the wine of Torah, he puts it within the, the simple comment, within the commentary on the simple um, understanding of the Torah. So even though it is tempting to sometimes just, just tease out the most exciting part, we actually do have to, the Rebbe is telling us, we do have to do the work and we have to go through it. So too in our Parsha, we find that there are very, very deep ideas, within Halacha, the Kenyene Shel Torah, and within the wine of Torah. The Sicha that we are doing is Yud Ches, Sicha Gimel, Shlach Gimel. But before we can get to the depth of, of, of the messages within, within the Rashi, we first have to understand the basic contextual meaning of the Rashi. Okay, going on to Sa'if Bet. So 
So what are we talking about in this Parsha? Within, in this Parsha, we're talking about Yeshua and Kalev as they're talking to the Jewish people and they're with regard to entering the land of Israel. And they say to them, as we read in the Pasuk, Ach Hashem al timrodu ba'atem al tira'u es am ha'aretz ki lachmenu hem sart silem. Do not rebel against Hashem and you will not be afraid of the people of the land because they are like bread to you and their protection has gone. Epeirish Rashi and Rashi explains, al timrodu b'shuv atem al tira'u, that do not rebel and, and therefore, that's what Rashi is really putting in, is b'shuv, therefore you will not be afraid. Meaning that not having fear against the people is a result, it's not a new idea, it's a result, this is what Rashi is coming to teach us, that it's a result of not rebelling against Hashem. It's not a brand, it's not too, it's not a comment between don't rebel, don't be afraid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's saying don't rebel and therefore through the agency of not rebelling, you will not be afraid of the people. And as um, we, we already just read the Pesukim from the previous Perak, Perak Yud Gimel, there's a lot to be afraid of, at least on paper, there's, there's a lot to be afraid of. Their people are giants and it's intimidating and the other spies have come back with very intimidating reports. Okay, so the commentaries explain that what Rashi is teaching us is that not being afraid is not a divar nifrad, a, a separate idea. But rather, not having fear is a result of not rebelling. So if you will not rebel against Hashem, okay, shoot, therefore you will not be afraid. Um, now, you would you would think that um, Rashi is coming to this because that he's really talking about the grammar in the pasuk. If you look at the original pasuk, it says "Ach behashem al timrodu." So against Hashem, do not rebel. Um, okay, somebody just answered the sifa. Thank you, Rachel. Um, against God, you should not rebel. And you will not fear the people. So in the first clause, the subject comes before the predicate, predicate against God, do not rebel. In the second clause, and you shall not fear the people, it seems that the, the predicate is coming for do not fear the people. So perhaps because of this grammatical issue, that's where Rashi is learning this from. Mishinu haseder Hashem. Do not rebel against Hashem, but Hashem was said before the phrase, do not rebel. But when it comes, as I just said, when it comes to the phrase, do not fear, it's said afterwards, who should I not fear? The people of the land. Um, so you would think for, for grammar, it would say, don't rebel against Hashem, but it's out of order. Um, which is causing Rashi to explain that just like it says, don't fear, and then it mentions, uh, then that that's why he's causing us to causing him to explain as he is. 
ומזה הכריח רשי שבאתם אל תיראו הוא המשך בתוצאה אל תמרדו. So he's telling us, no, they're interconnected because of this, um, this, because you might be confused by the fact that the subject comes before the predicate in the first phrase and the predicate comes before the subject in the second phrase. He's telling us that they're connected and it's a cause and effect. Okay, so that's pretty simple, but nothing's ever so simple and we're only in safe bet and it's a long sicha, so let's keep going. But this explanation is difficult. So if Rashi is really stopping on this grammatical issue that in God is coming before the phrase, or maybe it should have come after the phrase, then guess what? In the words that Rashi picks out, known as the Dibor Hamasfil, the words that Rashi is explaining, he should have taken the word Hashem into the subject of his explanation, but he did not. All he, all he is explaining is altim rodu. He did not, he's not explaining the phrase in God do not rebel. He's only explain, explaining the phrase do not rebel. So if the reason he's telling us this is because of the grammar issue, then he should have taken the whole phrase that has the grammatical issue in it. Um, and he should have taken the rest of the phrase as well, that where the grammatic, where the do not fear the people, or and if he didn't want to do that, as we know, Rashi sometimes uses the phrase vigomer, which means etc. He should have at least written etc. to tell me that my commentary is on the two phrases next to each other that don't match up. It's not just on the two words that I chose, but that isn't what he did. So since he didn't give us all those words, he's obviously not explaining the grammar. He's explaining it based on a different reason. So since he didn't bring the word in God and he didn't bring the word in, in the subject of his commentary, he didn't bring the rest of the phrase. Uh, it's clear that he's explaining what he's explaining based on the meaning of the, of the words do not rebel and not based on the phraseology and the grammar of the Pasuk. Meaning that there's something intrinsic to the meaning of don't rebel that's connected to not having fear. And it's not about the way the, the Pasuk formulated the words, it's about the meaning. Good so far, cool. following? Okay. Sa'if Gimel. So we're gonna put that aside for a second and we're gonna go to the next Rashi. Lahalan perish Rashi al hatevos ki menu hem. So the next Rashi is, for they are our bread. And what does Rashi say? No, we will consume them like bread. So we have a few questions. The first question, what is Rashi telling us? Isn't it obvious? The people are not bread. 
they're, they're not loaves of bread. It's, it's a metaphor that we're going to um, be victorious about over them easily. Like we eat bread. It doesn't, I, I mean, it, it doesn't seem to need much explanation. If you say that people are like bread, Rashi doesn't need to tell us they're not actual loaves of bread in the bakery. The next question that the Rebbe has, that le'idach, even more so. Ma'har sheha kavanaki she ha'kibush shavo be'kalos, be'kalot, kol kach ke'achila, harei ein kol chiluk bein yiyadvar ke'lechem or ke'dvar ma'achal acher. So if you're telling me that the victory is going to come easily, just like eating, it's pretty easy for many of us to eat. Why do you need to bring out bread? Why does the Torah itself have to mention bread? The Torah itself could have said, we will consume them. We will eat them. What does it have to bring out bread? Stam. We could have just said that by itself. And why does it have to say in the psukim, they are like bread. And then Rashi telling us that we'll eat them like bread. And Gimel, another question. Adaraba, Haya al Rashi Levair Nechalam Kimaachal. Rashi himself could have said, when the Torah says they are like bread, it, we will eat them like a food. And Rashi didn't have to say it, we're going to eat them like bread. Why did he have to bring out specifically bread? As Lechem, bread, is explained. If Rashi wants, just, wants us to know what is lechem, we, the, we don't know what that is, or um, he could have said, we will just eat them like a food, which he does in many other places, actually. So again, why does the Torah have to bring out bread? Why is Rashi bringing out bread? And Dalit. Madua ha'atik Rashi min ha'pasa gamatateva ki shalo pirsha. Why is the word ki, meaning for the, translated as for they, or they are brought into the subject of what Rashi's talking about. As we see, Rashi brought out the word ki lachamenuhem. It seems like he's just explaining to us bread. Why does he have to bring out the word ki? You see, every single thing is exactly medayak. So let's um, put that on hold for a second. So we have the first thing that we're holding on to is that do not rebel is gonna cause us to not be afraid. And the second thing that we're holding on to is all of our questions on the bread, the metaphor of bread. Now let's go to the next Rashi. <laughs> when I started the Sikha, um, I wanted to teach it because I read the first paragraph that Rashi is coming to teach us deeper, uh, sorry, yeah, deeper and the secrets of Torah. And I thought, you know, this, this all sounds familiar. This makes sense. And I can, I, I think I'm going to understand the Sifa, but I kept going and going and before I knew I was knee deep in all of this and I wanted to just keep going through it. Um, so it, it keeps building. So now we're going to go on to a new idea. Um, page three of the, uh, if you're using the handout that we posted the link to or um, Saif Dalit. And it's a very short Saif, which is also interesting. Dalit. So after this, Rashi brings out the word Tsar Silem, translated as their shadow has left them. And he translates it as Maginam Vechazpam, their protection and strength. The righteous among them, the Ksherim, the righteous among them have died. 
for example, Eov, who had protected them. I did on a, on a side note, look up Eov, and there's many different explanations about who Eov was, but one of them was that he lived at this time and was not Jewish, um, which is very interesting. There's like a lot in the Gemara that it says about who Eov was. Davar Acher, then Rashi brings a second commentary. Silu shelhamakom sar ma'alehem. The shadow of Hashem, of, of God, has left them. So it's either that the people, the ksherim, the tzaddikim from them have gone or that the shade or the shadow of Hashem, either way, their protection has gone. It's and we have to understand, Rashi why does Rashi bring two explanations? The And what is the advantage of each one? So let's go on to hey. Rashi Rashi is forced to tell us to say that um, do not rebel, sorry, excuse me, do not fear is a result of not rebelling and it's not its own Indian, it's not its own idea. It's because we already, as I, I um, started before we opened the Sikha, we already have Sukim that the other spies came back and they said the nation is strong that sits in the, that dwells in the land. This is in Parakit Gimel. And they are all, and everyone that we saw, they were like giants. And we are like locusts in their eyes. This is what the, this is the motivational speech, if you want to say, that the Jewish people have already been subject to. Um, so obviously, Yeshua and Kalev have their work cut out for them. So this I thought was brilliant. And I, I know we're trying not to editorialize, but um, they didn't come to weaken those ideas, to deflect those ideas, to say, oh, it's not true. They didn't, they don't do that. They completely come with a completely different approach, which I, I mean, sorry for my opinion here, but I think that that's like really incredible to see that right here, because a lot of times if a person is afraid and you tell them the thing that they're afraid of is not scary, it's not really going to um, speak their language. If a person's afraid, they're afraid. Telling them that the big monster over there isn't scary is often not really the right approach. Anyway, put that aside. Um, so how otherwise are Kalev and Yeshua supposed to tell them, don't be afraid without giving them a reason for not being afraid? So they don't actually contradict what the other people said. But the question is even bigger. We see Moshe Rabbeinu himself even seems to be adding to the reality that the other nations are indeed scary. If we're going to just jump to the psukim that are quoted here, Perik Yadalad, Mem, and then Gimel. This is a, a, a few, a drop later in the Parsha. We have here, they rose early the next, this is 
Pasuk Mem through, I'm going to read a few excerpts of Pasuk Mem through Mem Gimel. They rose early the next morning and went to the top of the mountain saying, we are ready and we will go to the place where the eternal has said to go, for we have indeed sinned. Moshe said to them, why is it that you are disobeying the eternal's orders? It will not succeed. Since the eternal is not among you, you do not go up so that you will not be massacred before your enemies. For the Amaleki and the Kanani are there facing you and you will fall in battle. So this is when the Jews later attempt on their own and they're, and they're warned by Moshe that they're not gonna win. So that strengthens the question. Um, it seems like there legitimately was something to be afraid of. It seems like Moshe Rabbeinu himself is giving them reason to fear. So Yeshua and Kalev have a lot of explaining to do, so to speak. They have a lot to justify, don't be afraid. We have the Maraglim gave that incredibly scary description. Now we have later that Moshe is going to be giving sorry, a very scary description. So how are they supposed to manage to calm the people? And we also have to understand where are they coming from when they say don't rebel against God? What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with being scared and intimidated? It seems like we're not talking about rebellion per se. So they're being warned not to do something that we haven't even heard that they're itching to do. Um, <laughs> if you have kids, you might know that sometimes you tell the kids not to do something and they're like, I wasn't gonna, do, I wasn't even doing that. Like, oh, right, okay, sorry. <laughs> um, so maybe they thought that they had to keep the command of Hashem to go into Israel. Um, and if so, then um, they thought they have to go in right away. They have to keep this halacha. Um, so um, that they have to just go in, even if they're afraid, they have to just go right in. So he's saying, don't rebel, meaning go right in, don't let your fear stop you. But if that was the case, then they should have spoke about that directly. Instead of saying, don't rebel, he should have said, you have to do it. It's, it you just got to go. I know you don't want to go, but you got to go. Instead of saying, don't rebel. Because May, maybe that was what the rebellion was. We don't want to go in. It's too scary. It's too intimidating. So they would have said, well, you have to go anyway. Um. So this is dependent on what Yeshua and Kalev are saying, that do not rebel and therefore you will not be afraid. Yeshua and Kalev are saying, do that the not having a fear is a result from the not rebelling. Even though they are indeed very strong, the people that live there. And that's a real legitimate reason to be afraid. And even though you might want to rebel because you're scared to go in, therefore, don't give it any thought. 
Afilo alpiteva, limro afilo me'em chazak. Even though it's natural to be afraid of, of a strong nation, but Hashem told you to do it, so just plow ahead and do it no matter what. This is what you might have thought. V'lachan amru Yehoshua v'kalev v'hashem al timrodu. And therefore they, they say, don't rebel against Hashem. They don't directly say, go into the land of Israel. Because they're not actually saying, you must go into the land of Israel this minute, as we're going to discuss as we keep going. As we know, it took them another 39 years. They're actually saying, by not rebelling, you're going to break your fear. This is like a directive. This is a, a remedy, if you will, um, to break the fear. because not rebelling is what's gonna neutralize the fear. And then they can go into the land. So we're not actually talking about just do it. Through not rebelling against Hashem, you're gonna nullify the decree. You're gonna nullify the, the feelings of fear. And this is the reason or the cause for not being afraid. And therefore, you'll also be able to go into the land of Israel. It's not just like be a soldier, and just do it and just plow ahead, go into the land, and therefore you'll be fine because Hashem told you, no, actually, I'm giving you a way, a method. I'm giving you a, a way to do this. So again, I think it's really fascinating. They're not saying it's not true. The people are not as strong as they look and don't be intimidated. They're actually saying whether or not it's true or not, that's not what they're discussing. Here is a method for how to, how to, how to manage. Now we're gonna we we more or less resolved that Rashi what Rashi is coming to teach us in the first phrase that not rebelling is um, gonna give you a method on how to not be afraid. Now we're gonna go on to the next phrase. That in the continuum of Rashi, it says, they are like bread, we will consume them like bread. Um, you actually might think that it actually is bread. So therefore, Rashi is telling us that it means consume them like bread. Um, Okay, so without Rashi, you might think that when it says they're like it's like bread, it means it's a staple. It's a basic necessity for life. Again, conquering the people and going into the land, this is not going to be the final answer. I just want to be clear because it gets sometimes confusing. You might think is as simple and basic to our survival as eating bread. And that's why the Torah is specifically using bread. Because bread, you know, we know bread and water is the most basic sustenance, even though, like, I guess lots of people these days are gluten-free and don't eat any bread. But ideally, bread um, and water is the most basic form of sustenance, the most basic thing to our survival. So you would have thought that. You would have thought that, it, it, again, it would make sense with what we said you would have thought in the first, in, in the paragraph before, that you would think, 
you're just plowing ahead and just getting the job done and not overthinking it because God wants you to do it, you'll, you'll break your fear, which is actually not what Rashi said. Rashi said, if you're not rebelling, that's how you'll break your fear. Um, so you, so it kind of would flow if you had been thinking along those lines that you also might've thought that when the bread comparison is that this is a basic staple, we got to just do it because we need to do it. And that would be why that would answer if we were going along that train of thought, why specifically bread? And that would give us a reason for they are like bread. Don't fear the, the people because they are like bread. Um, that conquering them, you might have thought that conquering them is as necessary as eating bread. So even if you fear them, go about it like it's necessary. But however, since we already had Rashi explain to us that not having fear is a result of not rebelling. Therefore, we can't say that, as I think I already explained, that not fearing them is because it's as necessary as eating bread. It's a basic staple. We just have to plow through. We just have to get the job done. And again, how can you say that this is a basic staple to our survival? As we know, it's going to take them another 39 years in order to enter the land of Israel. I don't think most of us can wait 39 years for our basic food supply. So obviously, Rashi is telling us something, Rashi is telling us something else. It's not that we must do it like bread, because if they're going to, if, if something that could be put on hold for 39 years, then it's not necessary to happen in the, imi- in the imminent. Therefore, Rashi wrote, you will eat them like bread. Specifically comparing it to bread. It's not because it's a basic staple. It's an it's an it's extremely important the way bread is. However, Ella the open ha'achila, but the way you eat bread, but rather you're going to conquer them in the way that you eat bread. How do what do we know about bread? What does the five year old the chamesh ben chamesh the mikra know about bread already? And the way that the greatness of bread, the way you eat bread, Rashi doesn't need to explain to us because the five-year-old, and we know that Rashi is, it's not a typical five-year-old, but Rashi is, is explaining for the newcomer, the Ben Hamish, the Mikra, the first, per, the first uh, understanding of Torah, the first time you're learning Torah, and assuming that everything that came before you already know, Kvarla Madzot, the five-year-old, the, the child that's learning the, the Torah in order, he's already learned about bread. La'il the Parshat Beshalach in Parshat Beshalach, as Rashi says, Halacham Asher Shalu Kehogen Yiten Hashem Derechiba. The the man in the desert, the bread which you ask for, Hashem is going to give it to you nicely and lovingly. This is what the the five-year-old associates with bread. 
not basic staple, I must have it for survival, but no, it's something that Hashem gave to me lovingly and nicely and easily and in a way of, of, of affection. The panim eros with a, a beautiful countenance. So too over here, when it says they're going to be like bread, the peris achlim kalachim, we're going to eat them like bread. Move on to kavana bazeh he shahakadosh baruch hu yitan liyisrael at kibush achilas haumos baopen shel derechiva. That Hashem is going to give the Jewish people the ability to conquer the other nations in a, in a loving way, in an easy way. Baopen shel derechiva. In a beautiful countenance, in the way that he gave them bread, he's going to give it with splendor and in, a, in a, the way that you give a wrapped gift, uh, something really special, not the way you just say, you know, here's your, your basics, this is what you need to survive, way beyond basic survival. The Zohigam Natina Satam shall altirau. And this is another reason why you should not have fear. Because they are like bread. Don't fear because Hashem loves you. He's going to give it to you lovingly. Don't fear the, the nation. Because Hashem is going to give it to you in a full and beautiful way from above. Okay. So we explained already that the not rebelling is really a method to not having fear and that the bread is saying that the nations are going to be given over easily and lovingly and in a kind way. Okay, so now let's go on to the third comment of Rashi that their shadow has left them. Their protective protection has left them. We can very simply, or not simply, we can understand why the second explanation is better than the first, according to the words of Rashi. So let's just go through those two explanations again. The first one is that the worthy among them have died. And the second one is that the shadow of Hashem has left them. What's greater about the second one? Halashon sar, ubefrat sar ma'aleam, the word sar, which is translated as has left them, but obviously in Hebrew, it's going to have a more nuanced uh, definition, and specifically left from them, ma'aleam, mashma'uta shehadavar azav es ha'makom shehayabo l'pnechen ma'aleam, acher. It implies, the word sar specifically, implies that something has moved from one place to another. It went from me'alehem, a word used in the Pasuk, not brought out by Rashi, just putting that out there for keep that in mind. Um, it's, Rashi does not quote the word me'alehem, but it is in the Pasuk that the protection has the sar me'alehem. It has moved from them, from here, from point A to point B. That's the implication. But it still exists. It still has a, it still has a metzias. It still has an existence, but it's transferred. So according to the first explanation that the righteous among them have passed away, have died, so that implies that whatever protection they had, it doesn't exist anymore. 
metu. They, they're not a metzius. They're not, they're not alive anymore. It does not really fit with the understanding of the word sar, which would naturally mean moved from point A to point B. And it, it doesn't fit with the word sar. The mikol shechen she'eno matima hadgashat sar me'alehem. And it even more so doesn't fit with the double phrase sar me'alehem. It has moved from upon them. That's why Rashi brings the second parish. That silam means it is the shadow of Hashem. It fits better. It fits that it, it moved from space to space if we're talking about a shadow of Hashem. As we already know that the, the shadow of Hashem the radiance of Hashem is everlasting. It always exists. And the, and the Rebbe brings a, a passage from Parshas Noach to say that I will never depart you. I will always be here for, for all the generations with you and with your, um, your, your generations to come. The Rachamav al kol ma'asav, and I will have rachamim, um, mercy on all of your actions. Elush sar me'aleim, that Hashem's everlasting protection is over all of humanity is something that doesn't go in and out of existence, but it might. Seem to be from what we're reading here, move from space to space. About people passing away is not the concept of transferring from space to space. That's the concept of stop and start. So that would explain why the second one fits better. But why do we? Why don't we just have the second one? What do we have the first one for? Okay, so the Rebbe is saying you could kind of stretch it a little bit and you could say that the first one does fit anyway, even though it's not moving from space to face. Which is why Rashi does bring it because it, he, the, the Rebbe is saying it does fit to some extent. He's going to explain that. And obviously Rashi thinks it fits pretty okay pretty well or makes a significant point because he actually brings it first. So what's Rashi thinking and bringing us that first explanation that the um, holy and the righteous people have, have left them. When Yeshua and Kalev are saying, again, this is falling on um, a reason that their protection has left them. As, as, and, they, and, what, and according to this uh, the first explanation of Rashi, what they mean when they say that is they mean that the righteous among them have passed. So they're not actually talking about the thing, the protection of God, but rather they're talking about the people themselves. The protection of God has left them, um, but what's the them? is the people, so it's not really a statement about the, sorry, excuse me, not the protection of God. It's not really a statement about the protective quality, the it's not really a statement about the people, the, the, the righteous among them, but rather it's a statement about the people, the nation themselves. Elu <laughs> 
because they no longer have the people that protect them. So therefore you shouldn't fear them. And I was actually um, doing chitas last night and I came to a pasuk earlier in the, in the that is not brought in the sifa actually, earlier that they say there's an eights in the land, a tree. And Rashi explains that the eights over there means that there are kosher, there are righteous people among them that are protecting them the way a, uh, a tree protects us. I thought that was just interesting that you see there's a, it's throughout the Parsha, this concept. And there was another explanation that eights is, comes from the, the word eitsa, meaning advice, meaning they had people in, amongst them in their society that gave wise advice and that protected them. Um, but back to where we're here. Kevan shemashin ogeyakan hu lohamatzav tzelem. So meaning that what Yeshua and Kalev are talking about here is not actually what's protecting them. That's kind of like the second, that's kind of the, the outcome. But what they're actually talking about is matzav shel am So they're actually talking about the um, the status of the people. So don't don't be afraid of the people because that which is protect them is no longer on the people. That the emphasis here is about the, the change in the status of the people, not about what actually is protecting them. The Khanamruth starts to them alehem, which would which would explain why the Pasuk says the protection has been removed from them. Because according to this understanding, which Rashi brings the first explanation. What we're what we're really talking about is the status of the people. We, what's protecting them? Is it this? Is it that? Is is besides the point. But the ma'alehem is the most important word, according to the first explanation. And you have no you have no uh, nothing to fear of them because their status has changed. Because from them the uh, protection has been removed. And even though we're not talking about the shade of Hashem or the, the glory of the, uh, the shadow of Hashem, but it's the, the people that died, the real thing, according to that uh, understanding would be that it's the status of the people. However, <laughs> I hope people are following. This is a stretch. The rabbi doesn't really like this so much. Which is why Rashi then brings the second explanation, which is about the shadow of Hashem. Um, as we mentioned above, above excuse me, the, that their strength and their shields have departed. Yesh makom ba'adaraba ba'pashos hektivos perusa mistaver makes sense. Uh, you could say, and it maybe even makes more sense. The kevan she psukim elu medavrim odos haumos mistaver shetevat silam hayuno hatzel shelahem k'sherim shebahem the lo tzilo shel hamakom. You might it might make even more sense to say it this way. Um. And um, it, it might even be a stronger explanation. Which is why um, it's brought first. The problem, so basically the problem with the first one is that it doesn't resolve the word ma'alehem. And the problem with the second one is that it's not from them. It's a, it's something that's from Hashem. And if you look at the words in the Pasuk, it says, Sar um, 
the the protection from from them above them. And as Rashi says, means Sherem Shebahem, the people from within them. So it has a direct connection to the people that it's a protection above them and it and it's something that came from within their society. Whereas the other one is completely just descended from Hashem. So both of them are a little bit um, problematic that the, the first one um, doesn't really resolve the idea that Sarmaleha means moves from place to place because if the people just passed away, so they 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 died and there's no um, there's no idea of the protection being transferred from place to place. And the problem with the second one is that it's not really from them, it's from Hashem. So it's not, doesn't, neither of them are perfect, which is why Rashi brings, brings them both. Um, so now we, we went through a full level of the, the cert, of shot on the Rashi's and we're gonna now go, as the Rebbe explained that part of what we're doing in the Sikha is, is dissecting the different layers of the Rashi. So we're gonna go on another deeper layer. We have Se'iv Ches, Chet. So from the very uh, deep and wondrous ideas in Rashi, This is where I was like, wait, did I choose the right tzicha? I'm getting a little bit over my head, but it was very exciting. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, this is dependent on a argument between the Rambam and the Raivid. Saka Rambam, Shechitat Akum, Nevela, Vimitame, Vimasa, Echad Haakum, Vechad Hakoti, or Ger Toshav, Shechitatam Nevela, Vekarov, Bene Shaapsa, Medivre Sofrim, Shehare, Tuma, Avodazar, Vituma, Tikruva, Medivrehem. So this is a quote from the Rambam, and I um, can translate it, uh, or I can just read it to you. So maybe I'll do that. When a non-Jew slaughters an animal, it is considered as a carcass and, imp and imparts impurity when carried. This applies even when a Jew is supervising him, even if he slaughtered it properly with an acceptable knife. Whether the slaughterer is a Gentile, a Samaritan, or a resident alien, his slaughter causes the animal to be considered as a carcass and is impure. According to my estimation, this is also a rabbinical dec decree for the impurity imparted by the false deities and objects offered to them is a rabbinical decree. So the Rambam, what's important for us to know over here is saying that when a non-Jewish person slaughters an animal, the animal then has a level of impurity, but the Ravid is gonna disagree with them. The Ravid says something totally different and he writes, Akum hem kebehemos, behem matimim, behem mit amin. Im hadoma lachmor hem goim, kemar medil medalev, askulam yisarua, fahachoshev otam lekulam asahrua, fahapna. The Ravid says that the non Jew is like a creature and therefore he does not cause impurity. He does not become impure and he does not cause impurity, similar to an animal. Um, they are like beasts and there is no defilement with a donkey like corpse. So I know this is very uh, not politically correct and uh, a little bit hard to hear, but we have to always remember that the Torah is speaking 
and the Rama and the Ravid are, are not worried about political correctness. And they're, they're speaking in very um, halachic terms and legal terminology and not in apologetics. And there's a lot of authenticity that comes through. And it's not a, a judgment about people are good, people are bad. It's a judgment about the stat. It, it's a state. It's sorry. It's a legal statement about the status of different types of people. So Bekesef Mishnah, Hakasha Al Haravid. So the Kesef Mishnah. Wow, like sliding around the roller coaster. We're just going. We're ready. We're we're going. So we're just going to keep going. The Kesef Mishnah has a question on the Ravid. How does he come to the understanding that uh, non-Jews do not become defiled and they do not defile and they do not defile? Where does he get this from? Hello, Hanidun Khan Eno Haakum Imhematim or Lo because the conversation in the context of the Rambam and the Ravid is actually not about non-Jewish people and their status and, and what they do and how what they does impacts the animals. No, we're actually talking about the animal, the shrita, the slaughter. We're not talking about the person. So what does this have to do? That's the Kesef Mishnah. So the Ragachavar says, the Ragachavar now writes to explain the opinion of the Ravid to answer the case of Mishnah, who says, "Why is the where does the Ravid get this from?" Um, a slaughter can only make something impure. Um, when the slaughterer is a mitzias, is a reality al pi halacha, it exists halachically, has a status. When the slaughter has a status halacha, is the only time that it can make imp- something impure. About imhu begeder heder, but if it's in a lacking status, a lower status, lo yitaken shikalkel, it cannot make something impure. The Zehu Shakatav Haravid, and that's why the Ravid writes, Machar Shaakumhem Kepehemos, Ain Matin Bain Mitamin. Because the non-Jews are on the status of a creature, therefore they're on a lower status, and they cannot make something impure or becoming pure. Hainusham Ruach, the header, Ain Makum Lamar, Shashita Takalkel, Vitasa Esa Behemot Linavela. Um so because they are on this lower status. There's, you cannot say that their slaughter impurifies the animal and makes it into nevela, which again is a legal status. Sorry, and it does make it into nevela. Nevela means um, an animal that was sort of just found dead, roadkill, that was just found dead on the side of, on the side of the road or just found dead, meaning that it has a different status than an animal that was slaughtered. So an animal that would have been slaughtered by a non-Jew is as if it's like a roadkill, it's like an animal that was just found dead. Because according to the Ragachavar's understanding of the Ravid, the non-Jews don't have the ability to, to become impure or transfer impurity. And it's not really 
because the um, non-Jews do not impurify, it's not really about the non-Jew per se, it's because their shchita is not shchita. There's no shchita amongst the non-Jew according to the Ravid. There's no slaughter. Their slaughter does, is not, their slaughtering is not considered slaughtering. It's the same as if the animal died in some other way. And therefore it's called nevela. Like an animal that just died. So um, why did the Ragachever write that they don't become impure and they don't transfer impurity? Um, according to the Ragachever, uh, what's, what's important here is that they are, have a lacking. Um, and what is the relevance that this has to, what, what we're really talking about is the lacking of the non-Jews. So what is the relevance of this specifically relating to uh, impurity? So let's explain. The chule alma, gam ladas ha-rived, bekama bekama nyanim, bahalacha ha-akum hem begeter metzias. Because the rived himself actually in many other instances says they do have a legal status. Um, they are, they have a status at other times. For example, um, idol worship. You're not allowed to have any profit from idol worship. A Jew's not allowed to have any profit from idol worship. If you have um, kids that are in Chidon, you might be more familiar with this if you've helped them study uh, Sefer Mitzvahs. Um, uh, you know, it's a, a big issue. I remember in seminary, the girls would have fun with like lighting incense because it was just a fun thing to do and it smelled so nice. And there were girls that actually had been to India and had been um, in certain ashrams and they knew what this incense was and they knew that it was actually related to Avodazara. And I remember them going crazy, screaming, get this away, get this away, get this away. Cause you're not allowed to have any um, profit or any benefit from something that had anything to do with idol worship. So there is, there obviously there is a status of impurity. And this is according to the Ravid. So if the Ravid says that the Nandus are just like preachers, so you would have said, so then you would think that this applies across the board, but therefore he says it doesn't apply across the board. It applies specifically that they cannot cause, they cannot become impure or cause impurity. So it's not that they can't cause, uh, it's not that they're considered like animals across the board and um, there's no halachas that relate to them and no details about, but it's when it comes to issues of purity and impurity, then they're, they're on a lower level. They're on a lack, they have a lack. Then they're considered like creatures and they cannot become pure and impure. So that's the Ragachavar explaining that to the answering back to the Kesef Mishnah about why the Ravid has to include that phrase. End of the bracket. <laughs> but back to the um, the, the um, what we said that this is a distinction between the Rambam and the Ravid, an argument. Im um, or Are they on a on a 
halachic status, a legal status, or are they in a lower status? Gereres machlokes osefes l'shitos o im ha'akum shayach geter hashgacha pratis. So what the, what we're really talking about, or sorry, not what we're really talking about, but on a deeper level, these two ideas of the Rambam and the Ravid that the Rambam says that there is impurity for non-Jews and the Ravid says there is not, is actually a question of, is there hashgacha pratis for non-Jews? Is there divine providence for non-Jews? Ladas ha-Rambam jahem begeter mitzius, so according to the Rambam, that they are on the level of a, uh, that they are on the halachic status. So, so too, they have divine providence among the non-Jews. But according to the Ravid, that they are on a lack, they do not have hashgacha practice. They do not have divine providence. Um, so, Let's go a little bit further. And then I, I do want to look at, oh, okay. So let's look at footnote 33. As I said that, I wow, I was like looking at the footnotes. Um, I was curious, what's the connection between Tuma and Tara, purity and purity and Hashgacha Pratis? So I'm just going to do the footnote outside, but I'll read one line. Uh, let's see, the third line. Hashgacha Pratis Nogea im so purity and impurity was a novelty that came about from the giving of the Torah. At the same time um, that the rule that the higher and the lower are separated was nullified, which is when Hashkacha Pratis came into the world. As we know, before the giving of the Torah, the physical and the spiritual, there was like, so to speak, a, a rule in Shemaim that the physical and the spiritual had no connection to each other. And which is why Yaakov Avinu was able to put on tefillin using twigs and then afterwards discard them because there was no holiness that was imbued in the physical object that he used for a mitzvah. Whereas we know today in 2022, tefillin absolutely certainly cannot be discarded. They're treated um, with a lot of reverence because there is a tremendous amount of spirituality that gets imbued in the physical tefillin that we use. Um, but before the giving of the Torah, there was this separation. And that decree, so to speak, that the uppers and the lowers are gonna be separated was nullified at the giving of the Torah. Um, and at that time, at the same time that purity and impurity was, um, was given into this world is when Hashkacha Pratis came to the world. I don't know if that makes more questions or answers the question, but, um, but that, that's footnote 33 that explained the connection between purity and impurity with Hashgacha Pratis with divine providence. Let's go on to Halek Tet, Saif Tet. Okay, remember we had two opinions in Rashi. What kind of protection did they have? It was either the Sherim among them, the righteous among them, the, the um, the leaders among them, or it was this cloud of Hashem, so or the shadow of Hashem. So um, I'm just going to say it outside a little bit, just to so it's easier to follow. If there is no divine providence, if there is no hashgacha pratis, then we're basically going according to the laws of nature. So if we're going according to the laws of nature exclusively, which again is the rivid, so then the fact that there were righteous among them that served as a form of protection is a more natural explanation. 
But if we're going to go according to the Rambam, that there is Hashgacha Pratis amongst non-Jews, then the idea that there was a shadow of Hashem is a much more godly explanation, and that fits with Rambam. Does it make sense? Um, so, so according to the first explanation that the non-Jews are on a lacking status, according to the Ravid, therefore you cannot say that the protection was a shadow of Hashem. The, uh, the shadow was above them, and, and now you can't say this. And now it's it's left them because this would say that they're on a higher level than the Ravid understands them to be. The Hariat Silu Shel Hamakum and the uh, the the shadow of Hashem Shayachalehem the Nibrod Lefimitzius. This would imply that it was that they were on a level that they could have a godly protection. That the, the, the shadow of Hashem, like a shadow of a human, that everywhere I go, my shadow follows me. But this wouldn't be what the Ravid is saying, because he's saying that they have a lacking. And according to the Ravid, as we understand through the Ravid, they don't have divine providence. Therefore, we have to say that their protection was the people among them, the, the, the righteous among them who suddenly passed. But not some sort of shadow of Hashem that was protecting them. Masha Ein Ken, on the other hand, according to the second understanding, B'nai Noach have a, an existence, Kishitas HaRambam, as the Rambam explains, and they do exist on the level of Hashgacha Pratis. And therefore you can say that the shadow of Hashem was connected to them. Because that would be fine. That would, that would completely uh, relate to the, to the level that they exist on, as we already explained. Rambam says that they can cause impurity, therefore they are related to Hashgacha Pratis, therefore you can say that the shadow of Hashem protected them. Se'if Yud. Ve'yuvam or yoter al pi So let's go a level deeper, <laughs> according to, sorry, the p'nimiyas ha'anyanim, the inner aspects of, of Torah. What does it mean at se'lu shel hamakom? What does it mean the shadow of Hashem? Hu she'pu, that the action of a person, it causes an action down below. And sorry, up above. I do something here. There's a cause and effect to something that happens above. Um, it's just like a shadow. As the Baal Shem Tov explains, Al HaPasek, Hashem Silcha Shalafi, as the Baal Shem Tov explains that according to what a person does down here below, things above occur. Like the shadow of a person. According to the movements of a person, the exact same thing happens in a shadow. 
And this is the shadow of Hashem. With regard to the nations of the world, and as we know that for all people, Hashem does not withhold any type of reward that a person is deservant. Um, and so too, anything that they do brings down um, some sort of a shadow. Something from above comes down below. So when they do something good, like they keep one of the seven mitzvahs, they get a reward. But when they do an Avera, a bad thing, something comes down from above that is a punishment. So there, there is a connection. But this, again, is only according to the Rambam. That they have this legal status. Um, and according to this, they have a drawing down from above, the open shall tzel in a way of a tzel, in a way of a shadow. Sir prati, a specific personal connection. And again, like we said, this means that they are related to divine providence. Masha Ain can, but but however, on the other hand, Ladas Harivid, according to the Rivid, Jambageder Heder, that they are on the, the level of a lacking. You cannot say that that which they do um, is, is directly connected to them, comes from above, because they don't exist on this level of that according to the Ravid, the reward and punishment that the non-Jewish people get is something that is incidental. Since they were created for the sake of the Jewish people. Uh, maybe it gives backdrop or it gives context to our world that there's reward and punishment, but it's something that's incidental. It's not something that's directly related to um, their, their status. Um, like so too, we see in the Torah reward and punishment with animals. There's a time when you would have to kill an animal. If an animal was involved in bestiality with a person, you actually kill the animal. That's the halacha. But the, but the animal didn't do anything wrong. What did the, as the question is asked, what did the animal do wrong? But rather it's killed because it brought about a person to do something wrong using it. The Ainza begetter owner, so it's not actually a punishment. Because the behema, the animal, was created only to serve the Jewish people. That's its entire purpose. So when we get to a point where the animal is no longer serving the Jewish person, he's not, he's no longer serving man. Actually, it's the Jews, it's man here. 
And, but actually on the opposite, his existence, the, the animal's existence is causing man to fall. So now the animal has stepped outside of its purpose for being. It has no reason to be here anymore because its purpose was to serve me. So it's not actually being punished. It's not like you did something wrong. It's just, you don't need to be here anymore. You're no longer serving your purpose. So according to the Ravid, this is the, the way in which the nations get reward and punishments, like incidental. Because the entire creation of the world is for the Jewish people. And so to the mitzvahs given to the non-Jews, given to the B'nai Noach, is for the sake of the Jewish people. As opposed, in parentheses, as opposed to the mitzvahs that are given to the Jewish people, which are for the sake of the mitzvah itself. It's like incidental. It's the purpose of the Sheva mitzvahs, Noah, of the seven mitzvahs of the non Jews, is for the sake of the Jewish people, actually. As explained elsewhere at length. Footnote 44. That the, say, the, the purpose of the seven mitzvahs of B'nai Noach is to prepare the world in a way to make it a place where the Jewish people can make it a dwelling for Hashem. Through keeping the Torah and the mitzvahs, through the Jewish people keeping the Torah and the mitzvahs. So it's to set it up for us, to, to stage it, to, to prepare it for us. And therefore, the seven mitzvahs come in a way of sovev, in a, in a, in a surrounding way um, for their purpose. It, it's, it's a general, it's a general purpose. And now, for, according to this, you can understand why there's no division. Well, there's no division in, in the types of punishments that the non-Jews get. And they get mita, and they get the same punishment for any sin. Mita, for death. And it's not like a shadow that follows each and every movement of the person. It's a set punishment. Um, I just want to take a one minute or two minute break before we go on to see if you Aleph, if that's okay. If you want to grab a cup of water because it's going a little bit longer and I, I just need to take a one minute break. Okay, and I'm back. Yoda Aleph, the Ze Tochen Hachiluk, the Pnimius Hainanim, the Alder Halacha, Ben Shnei Hapurushim Rashi. Okay, remember we were talking about a Rashi? <laughs> so this is the, the meaning of the two opinions in Rashi according to Halacha. 
appears harishon he kashitas haribid. So the first explanation is according to the rivid, that the, the non-Jews have a lacking. And the reward and the punishment that they get are sort of incidental. They come, they come by the way. As we previously explained. And that the meaning of, so therefore, according to the rivid, the meaning of a protection is not the shadow of Hashem, but rather their strength and their and their and their uh, the worthy ones. Through the righteous ones. But it's not something that comes from above. It comes from within the nation. But on the other hand, the second explanation in Rashi is according to the Rambam. That they do have a, a legal status and therefore they do have Hashkachapratis and therefore it could be the, the shadow of Hashem. Nevertheless, even according to the Rambam, the other nations of the world are also for the sake of the Jewish people. Because how did which which follows that the mitzvahs, the seven mitzvahs, are commanded to them in the Torah, and they were brought down into this world through, and they were notified of it through Moshe Rabbeinu. And they, they draw down um, according to uh, they according to its like, according to what they do, there, there's a direct connection between their actions in this world and their actions above. But also, as, as we started this paragraph, according to the Rambam, it's also for the sake of the Jewish people, but it's it's just it's a there is nonetheless a, a connection between what's done in this world and what comes down from above. The Mamela Yehole Heamer Behem Shitsilu Shalhamakom Nimshachalahem Open Shotzel Achinikratzilam. And therefore you could say that the protection of Hashem comes down to them like a shadow. And it is called Atsilam. Um Saif Yadbet Al Pizet Tichashev Bitov Yoter so um, according to this, we can understand the continuation of the Psukim, according to Rashi. Um, now, we're going to go back and ask a very basic question. Why did Yeshua and Kalev in the first place say that their protection has been removed? Remember where we started? Don't rebel and you won't have fear. They are like bread. They will be consumed with love. We have a lot of reassurance going on. So why do we, if I'm not afraid of them because I didn't rebel, therefore I'm not afraid of them. And I'm not um, you know, intimidated by what I have to do because I know that Hashem is gonna give it over to me in a loving way, the way that he gave me bread. So why do I even need, why did Kalev and Yehoshua have to even in the first place tell me that their protection has been removed? Why did they even say this? That's the first question. As they already said, um, 
but that Hashem loves us, as Gomer Altirau, that not rebelling will cause me not to have fear. Um, as Rashi explained, Altim Rodu, the Aze Shuva Tem Altiro, if I don't rebel, I will not fear them. The Kiniskar Laayel, Shekevan, Shehochim, Hem, Bekaycho, Shel Kadashbarhu, Ein Makom Klal. As we explained, that when they go with the, the strength of Hashem, there's no, uh, there's no room at all, Gamal Piteva, Limro Mipne Amhaaretz, to have fear of the other nations. The Chen Kilach Menu Hem, as we also explained, they are like bread. That Hashem will, will give them over to us in a way of love and a full countenance. With all of this, what is there to be afraid of? They already said enough to stop their fears. So why do we also need to hear this? I know that we just analyzed it to pieces and we took the Ravid and the Rambam and we, 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 we pulled it apart, but now we're just asking, why did we even need to have it in the Pasach? Why do we have to be told that their protection is no longer upon them? Or if you want to ask the same question in a different way, if you're telling me that um, I have so much protection from Hashem, then what does it make a difference to me if they have protection, if they don't have protection? Well, it's, it's, it's not even relevant. It has nothing to do with, with the situation of the Jewish people at that moment. Um, the Rebbe is going to ask another question. Um, and isn't it obvious that there's no protection if we're going to consume them the way we consume bread? So what are we actually, what's even new here? What are we actually learning from this phrase? And if you see in the Pasuk itself, after it says that their protection has been removed, it says again, do not fear them. Um, Hem, as it says, he has left them and the eternal is with us, so do not fear them. It has another, another phrase. Why do we hear that again? And It seems like it's redundant. Um, we were already told. Um, do not fear. So why uh, do not fear and uh, do not rebel and therefore you will not fear. Um, so why do we have to be told again, as it says in the Pasuk, the Hashem itanu alti ra'um. Hashem is with us. Do not fear. It seems like we're being told this redundantly. Okay, so the answer is that there's actually three different levels, three different aspects of conquering the land. One, Metim, one, they're completely dead. They're non-existent. It's, it's, it's um, the people die. Two, Temo Miyad, Vitilagamri. And the next level is that the people are um, kicked out of the land. They're completely gone. And three, Ergashenu Lachar, Shatarpa, Benetayim, Yuhu Avadim, Bukulei Lachmenu. And one is that they'll be um, expelled from the land at a later date. And maybe in the meantime, they will be um, our surgeon, our sorry, our servants, like our bread, like we can manage them. We're in charge of them. 
So even according to the second explanation of Rashi, which goes according to the Rambam, which goes according to the fact that non-Jews have Hashkacha Pratis, we nonetheless simply know that this is not the same level of the divine providence of a Jewish person. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different level of it. I remember, and I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, and I'm not you know, editorializing here, but I remember once hearing like when you run into someone that you know on the street in New York or wherever you live, you say, "Oh, what a coincidence!" When you run into someone that you know or that you were looking for. In Sfat, you say, ah, Hashkacha Pratis. And when you're walking through the streets in Israel, you have this much higher feeling of Hashkacha Pratis. So I'm not sure that that's exactly the same here, but just this idea, it just made me think of that, this idea of levels. That even if you're going to say that according to the nations of the world, there's Hashkacha Pratis, it's still not on the same level as according as, as the Jewish people experience. As we previously stated, and as we previously stated, the mitzvah of the Jew is for the sake of the mitzvah itself, not for the sake of the, the backdrop, the, the surrounding, the, uh, the staging of the action, but the mitzvah itself. So we're on the last page. And this is what Yeshua and Kalev are teaching. Okay, so from the beginning, they already pushed away that excuse, that fear that they are very, very strong, as we said, was in the previous parak. When they said, don't rebel, and therefore you're not going to be afraid, they already pushed away all the basic fear that we had. No matter what the situation is with, no matter what the situation is that with the people, there's nothing to be afraid of. It doesn't matter what type of people they are. Don't rebel, and you're going to be fine. But that's just the first level. After this, Hosifu Yeteramizo Sartzilem Matlehem. Now it's a it, there's an even higher level. Whatever protections they have don't exist. Loma So according so let's use the, the the line of thinking of the second explanation of Rashi that it was a cloud of Hashem that was protecting them. This is a this is a higher level than not being afraid. Hashem is just with us. So it's not only that Hashem is with, is with us, but he's, he's, he's gone away from them. He's only with us. So it's not just that it went away from them. It's not just that there's a lacking over there. It's that what I, it's that what I have is even greater. I have Hashem with me. So it's two different things. It's not just that, okay, they're lacking. So therefore your strength is going to be enough. No, they're lacking and Hashem is with you. So it's not just the negative. It's also the positive. We're not missing Hashem. Hashem is with us. 
for the other nations of the world, the, the providence of Hashem, gam im yeshna, if there is, if there isn't, but even if there is, he bechinas sel, the makif aleham. It's in the level of a shadow and it's in the level of, it's, it's makif aleham. It's sort of surrounding them. It's overarching on them. Aval etzel b'nei Yisrael ha-kadosh baruch hu eno rak bechinas makif ela itanu. But for the Jew, Hashem is not just surrounding us. He's not just generally around us, but he's within us. He's with us. Sorry, it says itanu. He's with us. Mamish, literally. Who v'hashkacha misyachadim itanu. He and his, and his providence are one with us. It's a much deeper level. So again, when we have what the Pasuk says, do not fear them, and then it says their protection has been removed, it's not just their protection has been removed, so now you've got the upper hand. No, it's a much, much deeper level. Their protection has been removed and Hashem is with you. So again, it's that hashkacha that we have. It's not just that we have, um, it's not just that we have a, a surrounding aura. Hashem is, is sort of surrounding my life. There's a godliness that that's that's directs, generally speaking, the, the paths that I go, but no, it's itanu mamish. Hashem is literally with us. He and his, his providence are one with us. So it's not just don't fear the people. It's way beyond them. But rather as the last um, um, phrase in the Pasuk, Hashem itanu altira'um. Hashem is with us. Do not have any fear. Stam. Don't have any fear at all. Not don't fear those people because you're you're going to consume them like bread, and don't fear those people because this because you're not going to rebel, and I, that's the method for how not to fear them. Don't have any fear. It's not just that they're not going to be a strong nation. And not just that they're going to be like Gretas, but they're stopping to exist. They do not exist. Legamre at all. It just, it, it's, it's totally beyond that. It's totally above and beyond. It's not that there's this pathway and this method. It's that they are completely nullified. Because the, 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 the protection has, has gone. The Yesh Lomar and this and this uh, again can relate to these last these three categories that we just discussed. There is the level of death uh, that the enemy will will die. Or you'll make peace with them and they'll be slaves to you. Or they will be um, sent away. It says the Africa. They will be sent away in some, this is referring to something specific, they'll be sent away. These are the three levels of conquering the land. But in the end, so, so, va, la, the end comes after all of this. And to end in a bracha, and the Jews will receive the fields as they are planted, ready to go, and the vineyards that have already been seeded. That it just goes totally above and beyond um, a method and an approach and a, how to get past it and have it, but that it doesn't exist. The challenge doesn't exist. It's just a complete over, over and abundant. So this is quite a journey for me uh, to prepare. So thank you guys for that opportunity. And I hope that if there's any questions or I hope that people enjoyed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.